0: God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 186, Jonah, Assyria, and us. I'm Maris Let us compare and contrast two passages, one famous from liturgy, the other from literature. The first is taken from one of the most famous moments of the Ashkenazic Yom Kippur service. We have sent you an English translation of it. The text describes the fragility and mortality of man. A man's origin is from dust, and his destiny is back to dust. At risk of his life, he earns his bread. He is likened to a broken shard, withering grass, a fading flower, a passing shade, a dissipating cloud, a blowing wind flying dust, and fleeting dream. So the prayer tells us. Of all these analogies, perhaps the most interesting image is that of human life as could sail over a passing shade or a passing shadow. As many point out, the comparison is made not between life and the object causing the shadow, but to the formless shadow itself. So the prayer proclaims. And then, in comparison, we have the words of Macbeth from a passage we have previously discussed. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. There is a striking similarity between Macbeth's soliloquy and this particular prayer. Macbeth said that we are like a walking shadow. The prayer says the same thing, that we are a of air, a passing shade. Macbeth speaks of us walking to a dusty death, and the prayer tells us that man goes from dust to dust. For Macbeth, we are a candle blown out. For Jewish prayer, we are a blast of wind. And yet, we Jews do not declare that life is a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. The words of the Hebrew prayer from which I have cited follow a statement that stresses the power of prayer and the actions of mankind. Quote, But repentance, prayer, and charity remove the evil of the decree. End quote. What makes our perspective different is that in the midst of this life whose time is limited, There is freedom to impact our own lives and our existence profoundly. And this means that whereas for Macbeth, man's shadow-like nature connotes insignificance for Jews, the temporary nature of life on earth makes it all the more precious. And rightly understood, this point is at the heart of the astonishing ending of the book of Jonah. Following his prayer from the belly of the fish, Jonah is spat out onto dry land. This time, he does not flee. He immediately obeys God's command to travel to Nineveh and proclaim the destined doom ordained by the divine. Hearing the prophecy, the city immediately repents. Chapter 3, verse 3. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Thus in the end, Nineveh is not destroyed, at least not at this point. What Jonah proclaimed does not come to pass. To paraphrase what we have quoted in a previous lecture from Rabbi Sachs, For Judaism, certain prophetic predictions truly succeed when they fail. Meaning, a warning from a prophet truly hits its mark when it inspires repentance and prevents the predicted punishment from occurring. But Jonah does not see it that way. Chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was this not my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before thee unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Why is Jonah so angry? One explanation clearly is that Jonah believes that sinners ought to be punished rather than forgiven. But as many note, there is also another point to be made here. Nineveh, the city that was saved, is the capital of Assyria. And Assyria, as we already know, will soon become the greatest threat to the people of Israel, destroyer of the northern kingdom. It is possible, some suggest, that Jonah already senses this threat, and he therefore prefers for the center of the Assyrian state to be thoroughly destroyed in his lifetime. Strikingly, it is soon after Jonah's career, at a time when Assyria does indeed terrorize Israel, that another prophet, one much less well-known, named Nahum, gives us a small biblical book that is also in this collection known as Treasar. Nahum's vision is the opposite of Jonah's. It proclaims a decree of the destruction of the Assyrian city that will be fulfilled. Chapter 1. The Burden of Nineveh, the Book of the Vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. The destruction of the capital of Assyria, the punishment of the ruthless empire that destroyed and exiled the 10 northern tribes, is the theme of Nahum's entire book. Again, chapter 2, verse 8. But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. So the contrast is striking. Both Jonah and Nahum speak of the destruction of Nineveh, but Jonah's decree is averted, Nahum's is fulfilled. Why? It would seem that in Jonah's generation, the sins of Nineveh were not as severe, and therefore, repentance sufficed for immediate atonement. In contrast, by the time that Nahum issues his own prophecy, Assyria will dominate the world as a tyranny, and the destruction of Nineveh will serve as righteous punishment from God. This point was made in a slightly different context by Rabbi Norman Lamb, who contrasted Jonah's Assyria with the antediluvian world of Noah. Rabbi Lam put it this way, quote, It is instructive to compare the story of Noah with another biblical tale, that of Jonah. The two stories have a number of elements in common. The scene of each is set largely in water. Each of them is a moral drama, one of sin and punishment. The hero of each is a reluctant prophet. Noah, who builds an ark for himself, but fails to arouse his contemporaries to repentance. And Jonah, who would rather flee from God than undertake the mission of preaching to Nineveh. And in each case, the major sin of the generation is described by the Hebrew word Hamas, which is usually translated as violence and which generally means any outrageous overreaching and more specifically robbery. Yet there, Rabbi Lam continued, the comparison ends. For the Jonah story has a happy ending, one of repentance by the king and the people of Nineveh, whereby the city is saved. Whereas the Noah story ends in tragedy, the cataclysm of the great deluge, which destroyed all life, save that of Noah and the inhabitants of the ark. Why this difference, Rabbi Lam asked. I suggest, he continued, that the solution turns on the word Hamas. Note the idiomatic distinction in the two different contexts in which the word appears. In Noah, we read that the entire earth was filled with violence. It seeped into the soil, it polluted the water, it was present in the very atmosphere, the air that people breathed. It was ubiquitous. It was simply a given, an accepted part of life. End quote. In contrast, Rabbi Lamb pointed out, the book of Jonah describes... Nineveh in repentance, atoning for the Hamas, the violence, that happened to be in their hands. In other words, in the age of Jonah, Nineveh was wicked but redeemable. Building on what Rabbi Lam said about the age of Noah, we can further suggest that by the age of Nahum, Nineveh had embraced violence for violence's sake. Violence then was seeped in its soil. Thus Nahum's words, which begin chapter 3 of his book. Woe to the bloody city, it is full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. In other words, at this point, Assyria has embraced violence for violence's sake. The blood of its victims has soaked into the city, and thus destruction is not avoided. Reading Nahum's description of how evil Assyria will ultimately become allows us to better appreciate why Jonah, some years earlier, was so upset. It is all too possible, as many suggest that Jonah looks upon Assyria with an intuition of what it might become. God, therefore, should be understood as responding to Jonah that if Nineveh is not destroyed now, if Nineveh is forgiven now, it is because God seeks to have mercy on Assyria as it is at this moment, at the moment of Jonah's age. And Jonah is then taught why the Almighty in general prefers repentance and forgiveness to painful punishment. God gives Jonah a living metaphor in a kikayon, some sort of botanical specimen that we will translate as shrub. Jonah 4.4. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a shrub and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to deliver him from grief. So Jonah was exceedingly glad of the shrub. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the shrub that it withered. And it came to pass, when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, that he fainted, and wished in himself to die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the shrub? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then the Lord said, Thou hast had pity on the shrub, for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than 120,000 persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? The kikayon, the shrub God makes clear, is an embodiment of Nineveh. You love this shrub, God says, should I not have compassion on this city? But it is not quite clear what exactly is the argument of the Almighty here. I have puzzled over this, but I think the message is as follows. God is saying, you have found something wonderful in this very temporary creation. Well, mankind is my creation. How, God says, could I not want to find a way to avoid its destruction? And the metaphor is, as Jewish liturgy proclaims, that our lives are ketzel over, akin to a passing shade or a passing shadow, much like the shade, or as other translations have it, the shadow of the shrub that grew over Jonah. Jonah is sitting under the shade of the shrub, and then the shadow disappears. But in the heat of the day, Jonah feels its preciousness. How much more so, then, is the preciousness of mankind made in God's image, endowed with profound potential? And understood this way, can we not see how the temporary nature of creatures created in God's image on this earth make our existence all the more precious? The similarity and difference between metaphors in Macbeth and in a Jewish text inspire us to close by examining another. Out, out, brief candle, so Macbeth proclaims. The concept of life as a brief candle is invoked in Proverbs, wherein we are informed that Ner Hashem nishmat adam, the soul of man is the candle or lamp of God. The fragile, flame-like nature of our existence seems to make life for the Bible all the more precious. And for Jews, as we know, the candle is kindled not in nihilistic despair, but in holiness and hope, in sanctity and celebration. We do not deny the brevity of its flickering luminescence, but it is our treasuring of life's brevity that makes it all the more bright there is a tale quoted everywhere in the name of the 19th century rabbi israel salanter that the rabbi once happened upon a shoemaker who was engaging in his work by the light of a dim dying candle and upon being questioned why he would not just wait for daylight the shoemaker and i'm drawing on various versions i've seen replied to the rabbi something like this he said as long as the candle remains lit there is still time at hand for mending to be done the temporariness of our time is so profoundly precious so redolent with possibility. This is the lesson of Jonah's conclusion. And ultimately, his tale in a faraway land can provide a lesson for every one of our lives. This is Mayor Soloveitchuk, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.